Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Hey, welcome back to another edition of NukleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther. And today we have a very special guest, my dear friend. He is the Dr. Dre of Deterrence Education. He is a visiting professor at the Missouri State Program, as many of you know, uh, the, the program that Keith Payne and the folks at NIP uh, run. He is, of course, and I'm, I'm not going to give you his name just yet because I'm not done introducing him. He also flew the E-4B. Uh, he's So he's a retired Air Force uh, colonel. He uh, was the associate dean of the Strategic Forces College at the Air Force Institute of Technology. And before that, he was the associate dean at the National War College where he taught deterrence which is how we met many moons ago. And so it is my pleasure, of course, to bring into the show my dear friend, Kurt McGiffin. So, Curtis, welcome into the show. Welcome to NucleCast. Adam, it is a pleasure to to be here with you and and the uh, the great folks at ANWA. Uh, just a great opportunity. I, I can't thank you enough for inviting me to, to be a part of the program uh, and I can't say enough how, how perfect you are as a host for this thing. So uh, this is going to be great. The only bad part is you know so much about me. I have to make sure that we keep the uh, the drinking stories away from the education stories. <laughs> true, true. M- many, uh, many things that would not be appropriate for this podcast. So uh, we'll st- we'll stick to the you know to the good stuff. Well, there we go. But, so. You know, before we sort of start talking about nuclear education, which is what we decided to talk about today, I wanted to ask you just sort of a a way back question. As you look back at the many aircraft that you've flown, which one would you say you enjoyed flying the most? Oh my gosh, that is a that is a difficult question for a former aviator uh, to pick a favorite because they all have their they're great things. Um, I loved flying the EC-135, which is the picture behind me here, the old original looking glass, um, because it was so archaic. As a navigator, I mean, we did the classic stuff. We we shot celestial navigation. We flew grid navigation. We did air refueling both ways. Uh, it was really when navigators were still doing the, the art of navigation. Um, I really enjoyed being an instructor on the T-43 when I was an instructor in the Navigator Schoolhouse, uh, which was a modernized uh, 737 flying classroom. I loved it because I loved working with students, and it was just so great to watch them uh, develop into young navigators, uh, not only Air Force, but Navy and international students. 
Um, but the E-4, uh, the NAOC, the National Airborne Operations Center, was also very special. A big 747 with a crew of 65 uh, and and flying and doing our mission uh, was just a tremendous experience. Uh, and I was uh, uh, fortunate or unfortunate, depending upon your perspective, to be one of the navigators on the E-4 on 9-11. So flying that mission on that day and watching that ex and being a part of that experience uh, was um, uh, was a um, uh, a professional uh, benchmark for me, if you will, as far as uh, being an aviator. But great missions. I flew aircraft for uh, 13 years uh, of my career, and um, it was a boy's dream, and I got to do it and uh, do it all, most of it, if not all of it, in the nuclear enterprise. You know, it's funny. I don't think I've ever. I don't think you've ever told me that you were, you know, in the air on NAOC on 9-11. What, what was that? I know this wasn't what we were going to talk about, but what was that like? And, you know, what, you know, what, what can you tell me about that? You know, when you learn what happened on 9-11, right. what was that like? Well, I, uh, I'll give it quick and quick and uh, the dirty on this. So we were sitting at Andrews Air Force Base on a modified alert status because we were going to perform some exercise that night. And it was a, a rare occasion where all four E-4s were on flying status and prepared to do this mission. It was just dumb luck that day. And uh, we were the group uh, sitting at, at Andrews, uh, of course, when the airplanes were crashing. So we got the klaxon horn and uh, uh, rode, you know, ran to the truck. And I happened to be the one to get in the driver's seat. There were all kinds of trucks. There were people jumping in the back of the truck and, and, and all the trucks and we're fast driving to the airplane and you're running to the airplane and getting on board. And um, the 06 was a Navy 06 that day was the team chief was at the bottom of the stairs telling us this is not an exercise. This is the real thing. We are going. And uh, so uh, we were running up there to, to perform the, uh, the actions. We took off um, just minutes after the impact in the Pentagon. I have memories of looking at that as we turned over the Pentagon um, and then flying for the day, uh, basically listening to the aircraft being grounded, all the airliners uh, going from place to place uh, in performing our mission uh, until we could get back. Uh, and then we, we uh, landed at Offutt midday at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska. And right after we parked, in comes President Bush park and it parks next to us and everything's locked down. And, he goes in to do his briefings at Stratcom, and uh, it was my moment to get off the airplane and go get a new flight plan. We were picking up extra crew members, our new our new orders, if you will, some food. Nobody had eaten anything all day. Uh, in fact, ironically, the pilot, um, uh, when he flew the airplane, he flew he took off and flew the airplane barefooted. He never got his boots on until after we had leveled off at altitude and he could actually get up. His toes were almost frozen. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating little, you know, little sidebars. And that wasn't until then that I actually saw on the TV in the ready room of the towers collapsing. We didn't even know that on the airplane uh, until late afternoon. And then we were given the orders to go back to Andrews uh, to be the lead jet before uh, President Bush was going to return to Washington, D.C. So that was it. And uh, we sat at, at Andrews for a few weeks and dealt with some other things as, as, as that evolved and and sort of we watched uh, our lives change. So that was my, that's my uh, event there. That was my big war, if you will, 
Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, one of the few days out there that the NAOC performed a, uh, an EWO mission, an emergency war order type mission. Awesome. I, I don't think you've ever told me that story. So that, that's, <laughs> well, uh, that's an interesting one for sure. Well, thank you. So what we wanted to talk about was yes. uh, deterrence education. I mean, you've spent you know, quite a bit of time over the last 10 years that I've known you doing yeah. deterrence education. And so I just, I'm sort of curious as you sitting in Missouri State now uh, and having set it into you and National War College, where do you see, and been the Dean at AFIC, so three sort of different places, where do you see deterrence education right now, both inside the government and, you know, in academia? It's, it's a great question, Adam. And I, and I think it's, uh, no matter who you ask, you're going to probably get different opinions. But um, as, you, as you may remember, you and I met while I was on active duty teaching at National War College. Um, in fact, it was a great honor. I was using your textbook in the class, <laughs> and I had got a chance to meet you. And I was just so excited. I was like, wow, Dr. Adam Wilder. Hey. And I let you know that we were using your book, and, and you smiled and, and, and thanked me for that. And, uh, and it was nice. And ever since then, we, we had struck a nice relationship. And, and by the way, that's how I met Keith Payne and, and developed a relationship with, with Dr. Payne. And, uh, really, uh, uh, and that relationship has, of course, continued to today. Um, I would say that uh, you know back then, talking in the 2014-2015 timeframe, uh, we were uh, really struggling to try to get deterrence education into the syllabi of, of any program out there. It was treated as an elective, as an oh by the way. We were still figuring out the war on terror, and the Cold War was over, and we had this massive brain drain. Um, and then after the ill-fated events of 2008. Uh, that really forced a reorganization within the Air Force, created the Air Force A-10, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the firing of a SECAF and a chief of staff of the Air Force, which are very cathartic moments for the Air Force, uh, really placed uh, nuke, um, the nuclear enterprise as a number one priority. And I feel, still believe it's there today. Um, but education is, uh, is, is, I think, slow to come about. Uh, and, and it's not for lack of good intentions. Um, we've had a lot of effort uh, uh, through various programs. I know at one point you were encouraged to create the SANS program, um, and now that program has evolved into the Air University system. But it's, it's still um, uh, a small group of professional airmen learning this kind of material, very in-depth, but a small group. I'm talking like in the less than 20. Uh, per year, and then and then some electives, um, and and look, some is better than none. Uh, but I think every airman, uh, everybody in the Department of Defense should understand deterrence. Everybody in the federal government should understand deterrence because of how it works holistically. But in the end, I think if you use a crawl, walk, run metric, uh, we are now entering into the what I call the stagger stage. <laughs> Where the cruising, where, where, where your infant is getting up from crawling and is trying to learn how to stand and, and, and move from coffee table to couch. Um, that's where we are, I think, as we attempt to get to the walk status. Uh, and um, uh, 
there are other ways to do that, but we've used um, various programs, uh, including professional continuing education, and I think that has done a lot uh, in, for the Air Force through the Air Force Institute of Technology, for example, in its nuclear courses and its NC3 courses, um, which uh, we were both a part of uh, at some point. Uh, I think that is done to 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 really educate um, the the nuclear workforce, moving that from the dozens per year to the hundreds per year. Sure. The challenge, Adam, is there are thirty three thousand nuclear airmen just in and around the global strike uh, world. We're never going to get there uh, at this pace. We've got to do more. We got to continue to do more. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is, is that one of the biggest challenges to nuclear education, like any education, is education dollars are low-hanging fruit. And often when there is budget pressures, they tend to get cut first. Um, and so, um, you know, we're going to spend $1.2 trillion modernizing the nuclear enterprise. We can't forget to modernize the workforce right along with it. We've got to bring them back. If you don't think we're in a Cold War 2.0 right now, We'll have to have a whole nother podcast to discuss it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a good point because when you think about it, it's not just you know the the active duty airmen. I mean, you also have all the civil servants, the contractors. You've got you know the folks up at Stratcom. You've got this route. You know, you've got members of Congress that know very little about it. There's you know their staffers. You know, the think tanks, even, you know, a place like uh, Heritage or Brookings or CSIS, even within those relatively large think tanks, there's, you know, just a, one or two folks in each that sort of cover nuclear issues. And, you know, as both you and I know, for the generation of folks that are sort of our sort of the, the deans of deterrence, you know, they're they're getting a bit long in the tooth these days. Yep. And what I've noticed is many of the, you know, the folks that are, say, perhaps my age, you know, and, and even a generation below me, it's much more prevalent for folks to, you know, at least to, there's a much larger community that is focused on disarmament and the, the rationale for why they many believe nuclear weapons, you know, are not good mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to those who focus on, okay, well, how do we, how do we actually deter? How do we use nuclear weapons for the purpose of deterrence? And then God forbid, if, you know, you know, I've persistently said that I think one or a small number of low yield tactical nuclear weapons might be used by the Russians or the Chinese, you know, how would we deal with that? So I, it seems that we're, 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 there's a real deficit, not just in basic knowledge, but in the folks who understand it really well and then are teaching and thinking and developing strategies. And we can generally count, you know, we, you and I sort of, we, this community is relatively small and we sort of all know each other. Um, and I, I wonder how do we do a better job of, building, you know, younger folks who are going to, you know, keep paying and, and the folks that, you know, he was a student of Herman Kahn and then, 
you know, who that generation below Keith and then the generation below us. And, you know, that's right. How, how do you see that? Uh, well, it, it is a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge, right? So when we have all of these think tanks and many of them think alike, uh, it tends to be, and, and I, I don't mean this in any pejorative, but it is an, it is an echo chamber. We're all talking to one another. And what we have to figure out is how to talk to the American people. In the 1950s and 60s, the American people were very much a part of the nuclear deterrent, uh, calligraphy the, the kaleidoscope right they, they understood it they would duck and cover and and movies and all of these sorts of things um to make them understand what was at risk and why we needed to have this great capability today that argument is in the opposite it's really about you know how evil these weapons are or immoral they might be and how dangerous they are and I, I like to break it down to just the very fundamentals. And I always ask my students, can you tell me how many, how many people have died since World War II from a nuclear weapon? And the answer is, you know, save a few scientists in Siberia, not many, if none, certainly none in anger. But then you ask the same question, well, how many people have died um, from conventional warfare, you know, bullets, bombs, gas, you name it, all those things. And we were watching a bunch of it in Ukraine right now. I would argue it's four and a half million in the country of Vietnam alone. I, uh, so I'm not sure um, where people are coming from when they want to sort of ban the bomb. Uh, I'm, I'm very much an anti-war person, sure. not an anti-nuke person. And what happens, I believe, is is that Nuclear weapons are a guarantor of peace. And if you're a peacenik, <laughs> if you're one who doesn't want to see endless wars or, or be a part of large, bloody campaigns of conventional warfare like we're seeing, the value of nuclear weapons and what Gaddis refers, John Gaddis refers to as the long peace that it guaranteed, I think is, is very difficult to ignore it or discount. And if we won't do away with nuclear weapons, what happens after that? And as you to get back to your original question, we have to develop the learned thinkers, the next generation of learned thinkers, who will be able to make those decisions rationally, not not irrationally, based on a political bias or based on the feeling that I shouldn't support these nasty weapons because I want to be invited to the right cocktail parties. The reality is, is if we go to war, there are no cocktail parties to be invited to. And so, I, I, I mean, that's just what it is. I want to find the best, the best things to guarantee peace, okay? And uh, I'm not convinced that massive conventional militaries led by governments that are willing to use them is actually a guarantor of, of peace. I'm just not guaranteeing. I'm just... I don't think history shows that, uh, but history does show that large nuclear arsenals tend to prevent large-scale warfare, and I think we have that history to look at. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence.
Yeah, it's funny you should say that because in many respects, I see it the same way in the sense that making the world safe for great power wars and world wars is that's not my ambition. But it's a great way to say that. (laughs) I've never heard a good as I say, okay, let's suppose we ban the bomb. Right. Uh, What then? Are are you saying that there's going to be no more world wars? Do you have a a way to make that not happen? You know, because it's, and this is a point, you know, we spoke with, with uh, Brad Roberts the other day and, you know, he, you know, very eloquent and clear, you know, concise discussion at this point, you know, you have to be able to think through what happens after. And, you know, history is replete with this, you know, when, when one country expands their their conventional capabilities another country sees it as a threat and therefore you have this growth of of militaries and then because of our perceptions of how uh, conventional wars can be fought and won we have a tendency to be willing to fight them whereas you know and i think it's a psychological issue that relates back to uh, Mm -hmm. prospect theory you know this this uh that Kahneman and Tversky won the Nobel Prize, but they developed this idea that we as humans are irrational when it comes to our risk aversion. And I think nuclear weapons, what they really do well is they force us into becoming really, really risk averse. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Um, I'm not interested in, uh, to, to borrow a phrase, I'm not interested in making conventional warfare great again. Um, and I think if you if you ban the bomb, that's what you're going to do. Uh, and if you're if it's the argument about cost, I think it's a it's an incorrect argument. Uh, the the amount of conventional capability that you would need to replace, you know, a single, you know, hundred kiloton warhead is is tremendously expensive. And um, and then and it's also very provocative because you've got to have a huge conventional military to 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 deal with it. And uh, so um, I I think um, uh, I I think a lot of this issue about um, about banning the bomb uh, and these sorts of things is uh, is really sort of misguided in the sense that what you really want to do is figure out how to obtain some peace. Sure. Um, and and it in and, and address those issues. Um, and one of the things you know, Keith Payne gets into this in his writings that one of the reasons why people hate deterrence, uh, I say hate, um, uh, disagree with deterrence, want to talk down deterrence, whether they're in a think tank or in the government or wherever they are in this argument, is because deterrence. The idea of nuclear deterrence puts nuclear weapons in a positive light, and that goes against the whole idea of if your goal is to ban the bomb, if you're making money arguing for that, if you're if you're getting to the right cocktail parties because you support it, um, that is why you're going to be anti-deterrence, and you're going to want to say that it doesn't work, and so forth and so on, and uh, uh, and nothing is perfect. My goal circle back to that big question about deterrence education is to help get 
the next generation of leaders to think about this in a in a pragmatic fashion so that deterrence can actually be conducted successfully and we can avoid the very wars um, that we seem to fall into decade after decade after decade. And if we're not in them, we're supporting them, like in this case with the Ukrainian conflict. So so they are, are, are issues that we have to think through um, and it plays into America's grand strategy, uh, which I also teach courses in, by the way. And and it plays into the whole thought process of how we shape our economy, whose friends are we going to be, uh, what alliances are we going to have, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why it's whole of government. And that's why we need to have everyone working uh, in this world, in this, if you will, this arena to be thinking about deterrence theory and how to apply it correctly. Yeah, I've often wondered. So if you think how government works, it- even, you know, a democracy in particular, democracies work that politicians tell constituents, hey, I'm going to do things for you in exchange for your vote. And in many respects, the Beltway operates, you know, it's where, you know, what is it, six and a half trillion dollars of a $22 trillion budget, you know, they get sucked into Washington and then they get, you know, divvied up and respent on on programs and many people walk away very wealthy and i often think that the perception of nuclear modernization is all wrong sort of it and you mentioned this earlier if you're a peacenik if you you know don't want a lot of defense spending then you should naturally like nuclear weapons because nuclear weapons by any effective measure are a way to drive down defense spending. They don't drive it up because you're not constantly replacing, even if you had a, you know, a cyclical 10 or 15 year nuclear modernization program, you're still, you know, for for one, it constrains what kind of, you know, sort of exploits the military can engage in such that with a nuclear arsenal, you're not, you know, finding yourself in far-flung places for somewhat questionable national interests. You're you're focused at home. You you essentially reduce defense spending because nuclear weapons, you know, have a relatively limited purpose in assuring the national sovereignty. Right. So I sort of well, ask I... you that question: is is how do we communicate this more effectively? Right particularly the young people. Yeah. So this is where we have to have engaging education opportunities. And to your point, whether you are a believer in retrenchment and isolationism for America, or you're across that gambit of that spectrum to a, a primacy type of a, we are the, you know, it's you're with us or against us to coin, uh, to, to quote uh, President Bush's terminology. Um, in in that it, it, whether you are going to be just by yourself or you're going to be the most powerful country in the world, you have to have a strong nuclear deterrent for anything else to work. So there, there's there's no way that you can strategically plan or align your national strategy and policy to eliminate nuclear weapons and say that well if I retrench I don't have to have all these these weapons. Well well you could you could lessen your conventional but you really got to have the nuclear to reach out. Um, if you say, "Well, I'm going to be the biggest guy in town, so nobody's you know messes with us, and we're gonna we're gonna rule the world," 
Well, you're still going to need to have a pretty powerful because there's always going to be somebody who wants to knock you down. Um, and that's, you know, sort of what we see today in this in this uh, strategic competition that we're experiencing with with Russia and China. But nonetheless, um, we have to be able to talk about these things um, and and, uh, and and do so in a in um, dispassion. It's not maybe the right word, but in a just a pragmatic way uh, to really understand um, why it is that we we have to have these capabilities, why we may not have enough or the right capabilities and what do we need to do to obtain it? Again, that's probably a whole nother podcast, but I would say that uh this plays a role. And the way we've got to do this is we have to raise the next generation of leaders through education, um, may, have them understand this. Um, oh, there are there is nobody in uniform today, save maybe the last uh, two, three or four star general in the Air Force who has ever been on active duty when the Cold War still existed. Um, or and, and I would argue that many of the younger generation of officers um, all, uh, uh, military officers, but maybe all airmen and civilians um, are, are also not thinking about it um, because society is today is 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 acculturated just in a, in a different way. Um, and, and in between those is this this generation of military person that's mid to senior in rank who's focused their entire careers on fighting the global war on terror and are still trying to adjust either intellectually um, or um, uh, or in posture into this new shift into this great power competition, which really wasn't acknowledged formally until the 2017 national security strategy under the Trump administration. So this is still relatively new for us as a nation, right, to switch from a post 9-11 um, global war on terror, which we did for you know 17 ish years, and then move to this new era of wow, we're back to sort of doing this cold war thing again, even though nobody really wants to call it that. Um, and how do we how do we deal with it? And we 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 don't have that next generation that's ready to deal with it as well as we would have should say the cold war had never ended uh, generations would just continue to evolve and deal with the with the problem as it is uh, rather than actually a new problem right Evol an evolving old problem is much is handled much differently than a brand new different problem right so so education is the only way to do it and at missouri state we have a doctorate program that helps build these these uh, learned thinkers in deterrence and grand strategy and and national security if you will uh, in how to do that at a doctorate level. And and sadly enough, Adam, I'll say this last thing. Much of what is going to have to happen is individuals are going to have to self-teach. They're going to have to pick up your books or Keith Payne's books or other books and articles out there and begin to self-educate and watch podcasts like this and so forth and and take the time to take an interest um, in that in that development within themselves because I'm not so sure that we as a as an institution, right, the DOD or the academic world or whatever, has enough oomph to get that kind of 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 acculturation into our citizenry the way we could in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, and I think Keith uh, Keith Payne did a study a few years ago uh, where he was looking at the number of, say, articles that were written 
uh, about nuclear deterrence, and he, you know, he sort of coded them, and he essentially was looking, are they positive or are they negative towards deterrence in the arsenal? And after, look, you know, he collected, it was hundreds and hundreds of articles, and there was a six-to-one negative to positive uh, ratio. Six articles that were negative towards, you know, deterrence and the, the arsenal and modernization for every one that was positive towards it. And so for, the, for those that are in, you know, in the world of educating airmen and educating civilians who are going to work, you know, in the operationalization of deterrence, you know, the, the schooling is pretty limited. The, the, your ability to, to read stuff that, that actually explains it and explains why you do it and what the purpose is and how it con contributes to national security. It's, it's a pretty slim uh, set of options relative yeah. to the vast breadth of, of um, you know, work that's both, you know, academic and policy and think tank that sort of hammer home this point that, you know, nuclear weapons are bad and deterrence. You know, well, I, I agree with you, Adam, and I think that's a great observation. I also say that um, if someone who believes in, in the nuclear arsenal and nuclear deterrence as a way to guarantee peace, like the way to the extent that I believe it. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, I would argue that from uh, turning the pessimistic into the optimistic, I would argue that the events of, of today, right, with the, uh, the Ukrainian war and all the nuclear threats that come out of Russia, with the, the as the STRACOM commander says, the breathtaking modernization program going on in China and the, the growing of their nuclear arsenal at breathtaking pace, um, not to, to paraphrase him, um, Admiral Richard, uh, is, uh, has sort of renewed America's interest in deterrence education, in nuclear deterrence. What does all of this mean? And, um, and I would say that that has created a, a, um, a renaissance, um, if you will, uh, and, um, uh, you know, I guess you could say uh, that, you know, Putin, you know, is deterrence his greatest salesman uh, in, in that regard. Uh, and so because I remember even running around the Pentagon in uniform in uh, 2012, 2013, going from, you know, meeting to meeting um, and, and arguing some of these issues. Um, uh, during initial modernization era under the Obama administration, um, still getting, you know, hearing in the in the crowded conference room, that's Cold War thinking. This dismissal was still going on even as late as 2013. It was really the invasion of Crimea in 2014, I think, that was the turning point uh, in, in everything. But, uh, but prior to that, there was still this sort of holistic um, uh, eschewing of this kind of idea. That, that this is really going to happen, that we're going to go back to this kind of world. And I think we're back to this kind of world. And if you're watching what's going on with the Iranian agreements and these sorts of things, it's just going to get worse. So we have to figure out how we're going to commit to deterrence. Uh, because if we don't figure out as, an, as a country how we want to commit to the theory of deterrence, then we have to figure out how we're going to fight those wars.
because that's what it is, right? The failure of deterrence is war. And so what I want to concentrate on is left of that boom. How do I get our nation's future diplomats, warriors, economists, psychologists, etc., to think about this problem going into the future in a tri-state dynamic um, and uh, with the, all of the influences of today's technology, social media, et cetera, cyber. Um, and it's just so much more complex. And so we have to start somewhere. And so I think what we're doing is, is, is we're in the right direction. We just got to get the numbers up. I would say that in just as another shameless plug for the Missouri State program, um, that the doctorate program that Keith Payne developed um, uh, is 90 strong in two years. So, I mean, that's nothing to shake at. And, and, it, and, and it's, it's, yes, it's a great program, but it's 90 strong because there are people out there that want to study this that want to understand it, that want to get involved and, and, and de uh, uh, devote their professional lives to this kind of subject matter. And so um, meeting that obligation, uh, there's lots of opportunities. There's great programs all around the country that do this. Uh, we're just one of them. But I would say that, uh, that that is an indication to me, Adam, that I think we're going in the right direction as we, trans as we move to that walk stage in the crawl walk run metric unfortunately we are out of time for this episode wow we it's been a it's been a quick you know we talked for over half an hour and it's gone quickly so let me just say thanks for joining us curtis mcgiffin visiting professor at missouri state universities it's the department of defense and strategic defense and strategic studies Yes. All right. Um, and I would say, Adam, thank you very much for having me. I do hope you'll invite me again. Uh, and, and thanks to the good folks at ANWA for, for hosting this and conducting this program. Uh, I just really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on Nuclecast.